I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Natalie Channon has a storied career from stylist to filmmaker to designer of Alabama Channon. We spoke with Natalie from her home in Florence, Alabama. You might even hear her dogs in the background. I am so excited to talk to you, Natalie Channon. The first time I met you was in Paris at L'Hotel in Oscar Wilde Suite. <laughs> it seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Or many lifetimes ago. <laughs> but I think that it, for me, it was it was weirdly like one of the biggest reliefs of my life or my career to meet someone from Alabama, and for the first time, just felt like, oh, I can now I can relax. I felt exactly the same way. I, I remember um, you would come and have, we would have lunch out on the little <laughs> balcony in the midst of the chaos of fashion weeks. It felt like a different world, didn't it? It really did. And weirdly too, I stayed at L'Hotel just this past March, I think I was there. It's such a magical little place. I do, I do miss that. <laughs> it, it is. I took my daughter there a few summers ago, and we, didn't, we weren't able to get the Oscar Wilde suite, but it was really lovely to show her that. You're in Florence, Alabama, correct? That's right. I'm at my house in Florence. Do you live um, on your home place? I mean, do you live where you're from? Yes. Well, I live within a few blocks of the house I was raised in and very close to my family. So this is my hometown where I grew up. And um, my daughter and I have lived in this house for about uh, 15 years now. Were you raised by your grandmother? Well, my uh, both of my parents were really young. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, both my paternal and maternal grandparents. So I would say yes. They <laughs> I would have loved to have been raised by my grandmother. She, yes, they're so special grandparents. Tell me a little bit about your grandmother. I know she was your, one of your first style inspirations. Yes. So both of my grandmothers were really avid sewers. They each had four children and each had three daughters and really made everything that the, you know, that their daughters wore. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my grandmothers had this beautiful upstairs that had a very large, what I would call an attic closet where she, she saved, you know, things that were special. Some of the clothes were hers when she was growing up, I guess, all my aunt's prom dresses and, you know, tiaras and handbags and all these things were in those closets. And that was really my playground where I was um, when I was little and I think had a really deep impact on me. And also as a designer, the two of them, you know, it just felt like they could make anything from prom dresses to underwear. So I, I grew up with this sense of, you know, anything can be made. Well, I think also a lot of times in small towns, same with food, you know, that you can't go run over to the 
Dina DeLuca, <laughs> you know, pick up a bolognese sauce. Like you have to, you actually have to be a really good cook to live in a small town too, I think. Do, do you think that about the, the creating things as well? Absolutely. Both my grandmothers also made everything that, um, and grew everything that came on our yeah. family table. And so there was this real sense of being able to take care of oneself. And, you know, I've always highly prized that, you know, the things I learned from them just because, you know, everything was beautiful and tasty. And um, in some ways they were artisans in their own right. You know, I've always been uh, very honorable towards that. Yeah. Was your family in manufacturing or, I mean, did you know that you, that you lived in the t-shirt capital of the world? Were they involved in that business at all? I was rather oblivious to it. I mean, you know, my family did come from the county and, you know, so there were cotton fields around um, where my grandparents lived and that sort of thing. But I really didn't make that connection between the field and the manufacturing that was going on in this community. So it, it sort of flew under my radar for the time that I lived here. My father was a builder and my mother was a mathematician. So I, I do think that their respective careers really played a lot into, you know, the way I run my business. I mean, my father was very helpful uh, when we started working with uh, local artisans just about bidding processes, just because, you know, he had built so many buildings. I was teased him. He really wanted me to take over the family business. And I said, you know, I, I build the same. I just use uh, fabric instead of concrete. <laughs> fabric, exactly. <laughs> Natalie, did you always love Florence? And did you have any idea that you would end up there? Or did you did you want to get out? <laughs> no, I tried to fly away as fast and, <laughs> and as, you know, as soon as I could. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, to me, uh, it seemed like ev the world was outside and everything, um, you know, was someplace else. And so, I mean, I was gone for 22 years. And, you know, when I came back, you know, it was 20 years that I started selling those first t-shirts in New York City. Um, so I had, you know, already started planning the trip home at this time. And I had no idea. I thought I was coming really for a month. And <laughs> You know, 20 years later. <laughs> exactly. Another child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I also, I love that you went to North Carolina State University. I'd forgotten that. And did you, did you study textiles there? You know, I moved to North Carolina on a whim and I started NC State on a whim <laughs> and really started out in the textile school and took some design classes and wound up being admitted to the design school. And then I did a double major in textiles and design, which today is called the Annie Albers program. Right. Uh, by so, way, by way of Black Mountain College, correct? Correct. And uh, we, would you mind talking a little bit about that? I don't think many people know about it. My friend Pamela Love is obsessed with it too. I had this incredible education at NC State. So at the beginning of World War II, uh, a lot of the Bauhaus artists uh, and designers fled Germany, and um, many of them settled in the States, uh, some in, at Black Mountain College in North Carolina, and others in Chicago and around the U.S., and um, that work at Black Mountain College became so influential on so many designers from the 40s and 50s on, 
uh, even to today, even myself included. And the School of Design at North Carolina State University sort of grew out of the traditions of the Bauhaus idea of education. And so I actually, my degree is, is called environmental design, which sounds very modern today, but really the concept was that, you know, everything in the environment matters, which to me is really true sustainability today. But so I did studios with graphic designers, product designers, landscape designers, architects, textile designers. So we were all in, you know, in one studio working on solutions to projects together. You know, it just had a, it was deeply impactful on my way of thinking and everything about really who I am today, I think, comes from that time. I'm sorry that I don't know this, but the, Annie Alvarez, did she, did after Black Mountain College, did she go to Raleigh and start the school there? Or is it just named after her? Uh, to my knowledge, she did not um, go to NC State uh, in her lifetime. So she was the wife of Joseph Alvarez, the famous colorist and painter. I think after the School of Design and the Textile School created this double major, I believe that name came afterwards. I mean, when I did the program, it was not called the Annie Albers program. It was just simply a, a double major in design and textiles. Did you happen to see the show, I think, at the Guggenheim of their time in Mexico? I love, I love that so much. <laughs> Spectacular. Well, yeah. and, and the other thing I think that people don't know, sorry to go back to Black Mountain College, but... I mean, Walter Gropius, Cy Twombly, Mercy Cunningham, Willem de Kooning. It's, it's on and on and on. It's the most important people in mid-century design. Yes, absolutely. So after NC State, you, did you go straight to New York? It's funny. I really tried to get a job in North Carolina and um, because my dream was to stay in that area. But all the textile uh, mills were gone. <laughs> yeah, they were starting to shut down and move overseas. And so it became very difficult. I wasn't able to find a job really anywhere in the in our region. And so after six months, I you know, started applying for jobs in New York and wound up getting a job there in the what would be known as the joint junior sportswear industry at that time and moved to New York and began you know, that part of my career. While you were in New York, it was um, mostly all design work because I think, I know, you, I do remember you were a film, filmmaker at one point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I worked. You have a, a storied career, Natalie. <laughs> I I do. I I've been very lucky and finding where to land and and rolling with that. And I do have to say that this idea, you know, a lot of the ideas that came from the Bauhaus made it really easy to, you know, to transfer ideas from different mediums from one medium to another. And so I think that really aided me well along my path of my career but yes yeah, so I worked as a I worked in the junior sportswear industry for I guess about four years and um, you know did quite a bit of traveling overseas for manufacturing and then after that I um, sort of switched to the other side I became a stylist and worked you know for advertising and film and even eventually I did that for a decade and eventually even made a few little small documentary films myself Actually, the first collection that we did, the the concept was to do these 200 one-of-a-kind t-shirts and a short film about um, old-time quilting circles, which, 
you know, at that point, the quilting stitch was really the only stitch we were using in the work. And yeah, and that's how the collection launched. So, And that was, I mean, that was the one that I bought. I think that, that was the one that was made in Florence, correct? Exactly. And more or less, we still, um, you know, even though the name has changed since that time and, you know, we're 20 years in, we work with some of the same uh, hands, um, you know, embroidery artisans that we worked with at that time when you were buying the collection. So, what? And you're, you're so, so ahead of your time. I also remember, I feel like every piece was signed by the quilter. Still are today. They're all numbered and signed. Okay. So, if you, you know, have one of our pieces and you see a number in it, you can call us and we can tell you who sewed it, you know, what day it was sewn, what, you know, pretty much everything about it. So. If you ever have a retrospective, just don't forget to call me because I have some of the earliest and some of the most beautiful pieces. Well, we're working on that right now, so <laughs> I will uh, I'll send you some be in touch about that. I won't be able to model them. They, were, they are corsets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, that's changed a bit for me too. So. I think also, um, Natalie. I think we did a wedding gown. Yes, remember that? I think we did a wedding gown for someone. We did. We've done. Uh, we did quite a few wedding gowns. More than you would. More than you would think. So. Do you have a favorite career, I guess, or a favorite stint that you've had along the way? Because you also now, you're an ambassador from your, for your town. I, I think you have a restaurant. Did I make that up? No, we did. <laughs> uh, we did have a restaurant pre-COVID. Um, we, <laughs> that changed this year, but we had a small cafe. It was really kind of, I guess you would call it an accessory to our, at the factory. So we were oh, yeah. open really just for lunch and then, we still have, uh, and we, we do about five to six or seven really beautiful dinners a year. So we had chefs come from all over the region and in our, from our own town and had, you know, these beautiful five course meals for 90 people. And, and didn't you do like a festival with Billy? I mean, wasn't there some sort of, I feel like I remember this too, with Garden and Gun maybe, or I may have completely made this up. No, uh, yes. Yeah. So Billy, you know, pre uh, Billy Reed Shindig, we had a he, Billy, myself, and a local uh, photographer designer named Robert Roush. We did. We called it, I think, Alabama Adventure Weekend. Uh, <laughs> Um, that was the pre-Shindig version and, you know, invited people from all over and had music and picnics. And so we, we still do that and we still have lots of uh, different kinds of events. We opened a, a not-for-profit organization last year called Project Threadways, which really was inspired by the Southern Foodways Alliance, this idea of really documenting the history of textiles in our region and across the U.S. and I think I started in 2003 collecting oral histories. So we partnered with the University of Mississippi and the Center for the Study of Southern Culture. So we're, you know, hoping to add all these oral histories to their uh, library there that they are accessible to researchers around the globe. There's just a lot, there's a lot of history to tell. And the story of cotton and textiles in the South needs to be more closely looked at and more honestly addressed than it perhaps has been and or not perhaps than it has been in yeah in our in our history books so i think i've told you my, my sister has her her master's degree from the center for southern culture at ole miss 
I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it extraordinary when you have people come from other places to visit Florence or Immaculate when people come here, just how special and original and just different it feels. And people are so blown away by, I guess it's that there are places that still feel like a lot like they did maybe, or I, I don't know, people do, I, just to watch people's eyes when they arrive here and they meet people and they're kind of like, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. I can't, I mean, Florence must be 10 times that than Charlotte. I mean, one of the things I've always said, I actually told a story at the Moth about this, but you know, we're just very connected still to the land. Like it's yeah. not very far to be in a place where, you know, you really could get, can get lost in the woods and, uh, you know, yeah. and so there is a sense of the wild being very close. The cotton and, and living off of the land, literally. So this is still farmland, as I know North Carolina is, and, you know, there's just, yeah, and I think we're all, uh, you know, we love storytellers in this community, right? So every, everybody's a storyteller. Here, so. I also think we're, we're very connected, not only to land, but to family. The connections there are, are deep. And I would take it even one step further to say community, like the, you know, our connection to community is really strong and I never underestimate the value of being able to do the work I do here in this community and, you know, what that brings me. Yeah. You, you've made so many transformations, I think, personally and professionally over the years. But one of the deepest transformations for you, and I, I witnessed some of it, was um, your experience as a young single mother and a, an only child mother twice. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. I love that you, um, that you remember that. <laughs> yes. I, I have a son who's 39 and an eight-year-old granddaughter. And I also have a 14-year-old daughter. So <laughs> let's make the joke that I have two only children, although they, they all love one another. But yeah, I, it was really interesting. I think you know, becoming a mother later in life definitely made me reassess how I was functioning in my career and how, what I wanted my career to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had, honestly, I had some very good advice, you know, very early on when at the change of the two companies and, you know, this friend of mine who was also, you know, a lawyer, he asked me, to write down on a piece of paper, you know, exactly what I wanted my life to look like. Like, what did I want to have? I love that. Because, we should be doing that all the time. <laughs> yeah, it was great because, you know, I thought I needed this one thing and I, and I, you know, I wrote down all the things like what I'd like to tangibly, how I imagine my days being and what I imagine my life looking like. And he said, you know, you can have this life or you can have this other life, but to have this life that you want, you really don't need as much as you think you do. And, you know, what you would be trading off to get this will take away from that. And so he just really helped me figure out what would make me happy as a mother and, um, you know, as a designer and 
that's what I did, you know, <laughs> and it really made all the difference in the world. And I'm not saying that it, you know, that the road's been paved with roses or, you know, I don't want anybody to think that, you know, any decision always comes with its trials and its beauty and struggles and all of those things, which um, make up life. But yeah, I'm really, really happy. And, you know, I think you started out asking like which part of my career makes me the happiest. And I really have to say, you know, this part right now. Was there a moment when you knew that you had kind of reached the other side? In a way, yes. I mean, it, that, the answer to that is that it's unfolding, mm-hmm. you know, every single day. I, you know, I realize like, oh, I wanted this to happen. I'm like, oh, that, you know, this is already how it is. And <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I'm curious how you feel because I think we opened our businesses right about the same time. What what year did you open? I'm 48, 25, 23 years ago. I've definitely changed along the way as to why I'm doing it and what it means to me. And I, what I've realized more than anything is that the hard things and the things that maybe people thought of as failures were the most important things and the, and the best things that happen. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, <laughs> will you talk to me a little bit about Project Alabama transforming into Alabama Channon? It was definitely not an easy time. You know, my partner and I in the business, I love him dearly to this day, but we just had different visions on where, you know, what that organization should be. And I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. And, you know, I just saw maybe a different future for myself and we just weren't able to reconcile those, you know, differing visions. And, you know, we made the decision to separate the business and he retained Project Alabama and I was able to leave and start Alabama Channel. And and I think I mentioned to you that, you know, I was just very naive about it. You know, I, I just imagined, you know, we were already selling to about 60 stores around the world and, you know, we had lots of orders and all the artisans were here. And, you know, I had been running the production office for um, all of those years that we've been doing it. So it just seemed like kind of a no brainer. And it just wasn't that easy. I mean, we, you know, essentially the company was broken apart. And, you know, a lot of the items like sold in a yard sale kind of. So I just put some money together and really went to the fire sale of my own business, you know, and bought what I thought we needed back Mm -hmm. and moved it into back into this little production office, which was really like a three bedroom brick ranch house on the side of County Road 200 that I rented from my aunt and um, and we started again kind of pretty much the next day, but you were, you had also had the opportunity when you started again that next day to change things. Do you remember the things that you said I'm never doing again or? Yes. So I decided that I did not want to take on funding that I wanted to bootstrap the company. And so 
you know, when we made sales and made money, we would invest in the company. Yeah, which is so funny too, just thinking about now during COVID. And that's one of the biggest things that I think has come from this is that private people understand that there's very little room for private equity in this business because you have to, I mean, the sellout is so so huge and it's such a it just it's really hard to to make money on that and so i love the idea that these fashion brands will be smaller and will be about being profitable i mean i think that that that's been such a strange thing for me i didn't come from fashion i mean i can't have an art degree but still i always thought that was such a strange thing that you have these huge companies that have literally never been profitable i mean how is that a business yeah, I mean, it wouldn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm, I'm thrilled about that post-COVID. I hope that that doesn't happen again. I mean, we, we've managed over, you know, that was 2006. And since 2006, I mean, you know, we've more or less paid for the company as, as we went along. You know, I'm not saying that we haven't had a revolving line of credit from time to time. <laughs> bridge gaps here and there, but, you know, I've been able to retain a hundred percent ownership of the company and that's amazing. You know, our, we've just put a lot of effort into our teams and, you know, before it was legislated to just to make sure that everybody has health insurance and, you know, trying to figure out the best way to build living wages for everyone and a safe working environment and, we set a mission statement that really has to do with sustainability for the environment, but also sustainability for our community. Also what we call cultural sustainability, which has to do with the embroidery techniques that we're using and, you know, making sure that these techniques carry on in humanity. Yeah. I love your um, unbroken production chain. Will you talk about that and what that means? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, in the beginning, I guess when, when we were working together, we were working with only recycled t-shirts and, you know, a few years in what we were, we started making those coats and things like that. And so one coat would take about 26 individual t-shirts to make it. And so we were buying these t-shirts from all over America and having them shipped here and then dyeing them and over dyeing them and over dyeing them again. And um, I spoke with uh, I met this at a conference, this amazing woman named Jill Dumain, who at the time was the sustainability coordinator for Patagonia. You know, we just started having this long conversation about the difference on the impact on the environment between recycled t-shirts and organically grown, you know, newly made fabrics. And uh, she just kind of helped me calculate some of that out. And it just turns out that, you know, in some cases, like those bigger pieces, you know, it would make more sense for us to work with an organic cotton fabric. And she um, lovingly made the introduction to us to the Texas Organic Cotton Growers Association. And, um, you know, we were able to secure some cotton and began this unbroken supply chain. So this is one of the things I'm most proud of that we've been able to make this happen since 2006. But we have an unbroken uh, supply chain for our fabric in the U.S. Or the fibers grown and uh, ginned in Texas. It's um, spun, knit, and dyed in North Carolina, and then comes to us in Alabama for you know cutting, sewing, embroidering, printing, painting, 
And then, so it, it's a seed to shelf made in the USA for most of our, most of our, our, our products. We, we buy some thread and some hardware, things like that from other places, but you know, 95% of everything that goes into our garments is made right here, mainly in our region. And it's crazy to think, you know, in the fashion world, like from Texas to North Carolina to Alabama would really be considered hyper local. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is which is crazy because it's really not that it's not that local, but you know, in this crazy world we've been living in, it, it, our product is hyper local. I think I've told you this before. My family had hosiery mills for a hundred years and they did all of they did Donna Karen's hosiery, they did Calvin Klein's, they did Ralph Lauren, they did all of these, you know, big designers in the eighties and then and then NAFTA after a hundred years they went out of business in like six months. So I particularly appreciate that and wanted to know how do you share that story with the client and how how interested are they in it? I ask this because we we carried, I mean, this is almost blasphemy even saying it, but we carried for ages um, Stella McCartney. You know, you'd be in Milan where you'd <laughs> flown eight hours to go and gone to see the collection, which doesn't seem sustainable at all. And and then, you, you know, you look at the collection, it was all this sort of man-made plastic shoes and things like that and all these things because it was vegan, but still everything was supposed to be sustainable. And the, and the salespeople would always say to us, you know, isn't that important to your client? I, I don't know that my client can understand that a plastic pair of shoes is better than a leather pair of shoes. Whereas I think with your pieces, you know, just to know that thread is from North Carolina and that, you know, the cotton from Texas, I mean, that, that's really meaningful. And you can actually feel that because it feels like it was grown. That makes me so proud. <laughs> well, I also want to tell you, start not to bash poor Stella McCartney, but the other thing is that they, when they would ship the collection, they would ship one piece in one box and you'd get 30 boxes from them, these huge shipping boxes for every single piece. And it was like literally the, the least sustainable thing I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> but I just, but your story's really different. <laughs> I know. When we used to, in Project Alabama days, like when we were first shipping boxes, I'm sure you got some like this. Like I would hang all the clothes out on a sunny day mm-hmm. and let them smell like sunshine, <laughs> pack sunshine into the box in the afternoon so that when, you know, they opened the one box, it would smell like sunshine when it opened. And it did. I promise you it did. <laughs> <laughs> I used to handwrite poems on the seams of, you know, each of the garments. Um, yeah. You know, when we opened our machine manufacturing division, so the building that we're in was a t-shirt manufacturing plant. And so when we moved back in, my, my production coordinator had actually worked the sewing floor in that plant. So it really felt like coming home for him mm-hmm. and so many of the people that work with us today pre and post COVID mm-hmm. we give tours um, every day, every weekday at two o'clock. And I mean, some days there would be 25 people there to take the tour just because they couldn't believe that we were making, you know, t-shirts and garments in, in our community again. And I mean, people would drive, you know, like once we had a couple from Ireland that was going from New York to California and just stopped by because they just wanted to see it. And, 
I love that. That machine floor. And so my dear friend, Kathy from Heat Ceramics, she always says there's just something undeniable about the hum of making. It is my hope with our collection that when you wear it, you feel that and you feel that it was made by a person. And even though we make things by hand and machine now as well, our, our machine artisans also sign their labels because yeah. it's very difficult. So. Absolutely. Do you have a hope for the next 20 years for Alabama Channon? Yes. So, I, I mean, I don't know how you feel. I was going to ask you this earlier, but, you know, I do think about maybe not retiring, but backing away some for the business. We're really working hard to figure out what the next step is for our, for our team members and our younger team and how this can go on another 20 years or 40 years or 50 years for them, with them, by them, for them. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what we're working on right now. Every podcast we ask our guests what they wore to the prom. <laughs> were you still in Florence when in high school? No, you were in Chattanooga. Yeah, I was in Chattanooga. And I, I think I, you know, I'm not even sure if I had a date to the prom. I was one of those girls that was kind of, you know. That means you probably wore something cool, though. <laughs> I don't know. That would have been, you know, the late seventies. It was pretty, uh, (laughs) I think it was pretty bad. I might be embarrassed, but you know, probably something that had, you know, mildly puff sleeves that were (laughs) nodding towards the eighties, which were on the horizon. Um, maybe in a kind of a brown color. I don't know. <laughs> I see you in that. No, I cannot see you in that. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a favorite piece of Alabama Channon that you've made? Do you have an archive? We do have an archive. Yes, I have, and I have uh, Polaroid photographs of it framed. And it actually was, I guess, one of the first pieces that ran kind of as a full page in Vogue. And we originally made the piece. So, you know, everything was completely made by hand. Um, I guess the stylist for Britney Spears had called and they wanted something that was sort of yellow with butterflies on it. So we made this thing and I looked at it and I was like, (laughs) this cannot, no, this is, some things need to be burned. Like everybody doesn't need to see everything that comes from our, you know, our minds because sometimes our minds fail. So we over dyed it and it, you know, kind of came out this sort of crazy color. And then I had all these sequin appliques I didn't know what to do with. And so we sewed the sequin appliques on it and then we over dyed it again. And this piece wound up being worked on probably 10 times, but it turned out this thing that was just like, you know, was a giant fail became one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. And, um, and is it still, after the, all the over dyeing, was it still yellow and no, it became like red, light pink, dark, burgundy. Oh, pretty. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. I can send you a, a Send me a photo. A photo. <laughs> I probably saw it in market. We probably you probably did. <laughs> I think it did wind up in one of the collections and we did make several of them. So um in the end. But it was so hard to reproduce again. But <laughs> it's still on in uh it, it's actually 
in my kitchen, I have like a little ledge with a lot of photographs on it. And those four Polaroids are framed and on my kitchen ledge. So, Well, Natalie, thank you so, so much for joining us and for talking to me today in the uh, world. <laughs> I just love, I've been listening to the podcast and I love everything that you're doing. I'm so proud to be included and really, really appreciate you reaching out. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.